going to start our Advent sermon series this week, as has been made evident. Today is the first uh, Sunday of Advent. And so we're pressing pause on the book of Matthew, and we're actually just turning to the previous book in the Bible, which is the book of Malachi. So Matthew is the first book of the Old Testament. Malachi is the final book, sorry, the first book of the New Testament. And Malachi is the final book of the Old Testament. And so the reason that we're looking at the book of Malachi for Advent is because built into the idea of Advent is this uh, concept of waiting. Uh, Advent means appearing. And as Christians, we live this life waiting and looking forward to the day when Christ will appear. Uh, the, the heavens will be ripped open and Christ will descend and he will set up his eternal kingdom. Uh, that is the hope of the Christian. And Malachi was the final Old Testament prophet. And he was writing in the middle of the fourth century. And this was the last word that God spoke to his people before they entered into 400 years of waiting for Christ to come the first time. And so I thought to myself, well, if these words were sufficient for God's people uh, right before they entered into a time of waiting for Christ to come the first time, then I wondered if they would be profitable for us uh, to consider them as we are in the midst of waiting uh, for Christ to come the second time. And so for that reason, I've titled the Advent series, Faithfully Waiting. I also, as I looked at Malachi, noticed that it was possible to sort of map over the book of Malachi the themes of Advent. And so uh, today we will be considering hope, and then next week peace, and then joy, and then love. And then finally, uh, we'll uh, consider specifically on Christmas Day, Christ. Um, So let's open to the book of Malachi and read our passage this morning. Um, I imagine most of you are already there, so you'll have to wait for me to catch up. Hear the word of the Lord. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, toward uh, the end of the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus tells this story to his uh, disciples as he's describing for them what it will be like for them to wait for his second coming. And he tells the story of ten virgins uh, who are waiting for the bridegroom to come and so they can enter into this wedding feast. And they go out to meet him, and five of the virgins bring oil for their lamps, and five of the virgins do not. Well, it turns out the the bridegroom is delayed in coming, which would have given the virgins who did not bring oil for their lamps plenty of time to go back into town and to get the oil that they needed and and then to come back and to wait for him. But they didn't do that. Instead, uh, they fell asleep. Well, at midnight, uh, the bridegroom comes and he comes with shouts and celebrations uh, for the moment. They all wake up. And the virgins who did not bring oil for their lamps realize, oh no, we don't have oil for our lamps. We we won't be able to go into the wedding feast. 
And so they say to the virgins who, who did bring oil for their lamps, hey, g- give us some of your oil. And, and they say, well, if we gave you some of our oil, then, then we wouldn't have enough. And so the virgins who didn't bring oil, they, they ran back to town, hopefully uh, in time to get some oil and then come back, but it was too late. They missed it. Why? Ultimately, the reason they missed it is because they had misplaced their hope. You see, the virgins who brought oil did so because they wanted to be ready when the bridegroom came. Their hope was in him. They they didn't want to miss the wedding feast. And the others, sure, they wanted on some level to go to the feast, but they weren't putting their hope in it. They weren't longing for the moment when he came, dreaming about it with expectation and hoping in it with everything that they had. They were distracted. It wasn't the most important thing to them, and they even had time to go back and get oil. But they fell asleep. You see, when we really put our hope in something, we won't miss it. Like the mother whose son is coming back from college or the military after being gone for the first large chunk of time of their entire lives. She's going to have his favorite cereal. She's going to have his favorite dinner ready to go. All his favorite things to do will be planned out for them. Like the man whose team makes it to the championship game, do you think he's going to miss that game? No way. He's going to get a seven-day free trial to Fubo. Watch that game. Or the, or the high school student who finally gets up enough nerve to ask his crush to the prom, and she says, yes, he will be there on time to pick her up, dressed for the occasion. Because if we're really hoping in something, we will be full of expectation and we will be prepared. Our passage this morning closes in verse 5 with God telling the people this. He says, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. You see, these are words of promise meant to stir up hope and expectation. Everything God says before this then is meant to give his people hope that they will see something with their own eyes and they will glorify the greatness of God because of it. So the plan this morning then is to look at what leads to this declaration. Our first point will be how we lose hope and then how we find hope and finally how we keep hope. So losing hope happens when the thing that we are hoping in lets us down, when your son calls the day before and says, oh, sorry, mom, I'm actually not going to be able to make it this year. When your team loses the championship game, when the girl who said yes decides to say yes to someone else. These are hope-crushing events, but God never lets us down. Therefore, we should never lose hope in God. God should be the one we can still put our hope in no matter what our circumstances are. So if we have lost hope in God, That must mean that our hope was never actually in God in the first place. Let me say that again. Since it is impossible for God to fail, if we have lost hope in God, 
that necessarily must mean that we had never actually put our hope in God in the first place. After the introduction in verse 1, God speaks to his people in verse 2, and he says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? See, God comes to his people through the prophet, and he tells them, I have loved you. And it's difficult to translate this word from Hebrew into English because in Hebrew, this word carries connotations not only of I have loved you, but I have always loved you. I love you now. I will always love you. It's very similar to what God says to his people through Jeremiah, where he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. And so God comes to his people and reminds them that he loves them, that he's always loved them. And we know from the New Testament that if we're in Christ, he has loved us since before the foundation of the world. And so God, who is infinite and who has all power and authority, who's full of Justice and mercy and grace comes to them and he speaks these words of grace to them which should fill them with hope and expectation. But instead, instead they say, well, how have you loved us, God? Prove it. Because uh, it doesn't seem like you love us. Like little children who don't understand that everything their parents have done for them is for their good. So why would the people of Israel respond this way? Well, let me go back to something I have already said. If we lose hope in God, it must mean that we were never really hoping in God in the first place. And at the end of the day, the people respond to God this way because they were hoping in something else of this world. And they were expecting God to come through for them, to give that thing to them. And now they don't have it. And since God has not come through for them as they would have liked, they doubt his love. So after the exile in Babylon, the people of Israel returned to Jerusalem, and they were filled with hope and expectation that all the promises that were given to Israel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, that all those promises were about to come true. So they're marching across the desert, and they think they're going to walk into this amazing place where the temple is going to be rebuilt and it's going to be glorious beyond their wildest expectations and, and David's son is going to take the throne and he's going to rule on that throne forever. But now here they are, a hundred years later, there's no king on the throne, they're still under the thumb of the Persian Empire, they are poor farmers, they're surrounded by hostile enemies, and life is hard. And sure, they rebuilt the temple, but it's anything but glorious like it once was under Solomon. And to be honest, it kind of seems like all of those promises that God made to Israel have failed. And so I wonder if we have ever felt like this about God. Have we ever felt like God has let us down? Maybe he's allowed something to happen that he could have stopped, but he let it happen. Maybe someone in our life right now is suffering, a loved one. They're injured or sick, or maybe they're unbelieving. Maybe it's a child. 
Maybe our marriage hasn't turned out how we hoped it would. Our career hasn't unfolded in the, in the way that we thought it would. Or maybe it has. Maybe, maybe our marriage is great and our career is wonderful and, and we're the envy of all of our friends, but on the inside we've got this sinking suspicion that something is missing and we don't know what that thing is. And so when we hear God say, I've always loved you, we can't help but think, how, God? How have you always loved me when life is the way it is for me? 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. And if that's what most of us believe, it's no wonder that we doubt God's love when something comes and takes away our enjoyment of life. And if that is our response... As hard as this is to hear, then our hope was never really in God in the first place. If that's our response, then we can know that our hope has always actually been in our circumstances or our good health or good relationships, a fulfilling life and career, or even our own personal sense of well-being. You see, the Israelites didn't want God for himself. They, they wanted the glorious life they thought God had promised them. And because God wasn't loving them how they thought God should love them, they doubted his love and they lost their hope. Which begs the question, how, how can we find hope? And the answer is we find hope when we learn to see life from God's point of view as he gives it to us in his word. Listen to how the book of Malachi opens. Verse 1, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. So this book begins by reminding us that these are the very words of God. That the infinite, timeless God who's always existed, who created everything, is speaking to us. He's not distant. He's not far off. It's not as if he cannot be known. He's he's revealed himself to us, and his word is more true than whatever we think or whatever we feel. And we find hope when we look at life as the scriptures tell us that we ought to look at life. Because the truth is, all of us have intuitions, all of us have assumptions and inclinations about how to understand and interpret the events of our life. And all of that, if we're honest, is is influenced by the world. It's influenced by our culture and our own particular brand of sinfulness. And so the only way to understand life from God's perspective is to know his word inside and out and then read it along with Christians throughout 2,000 years so that we don't have our own novel interpretation. And with that in mind, listen to how God responds to the charge that he has not loved Israel. He says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. This is probably not how I would have responded (laughs) You would think that God would come along and say, no, I know things are hard, but but look at all the the reasons you have to to trust in my love. 
Look at all the good things you still do have. Or maybe that he would try to explain to them, oh, well, you know, all of these bad things are happening, but, but they're all going to work out for good for you if you just trust me. Look at all these things that are, that are happening in the future. But, but that's not what God says. So let's think about what he does say. Jacob and Esau were the twin sons of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham was the father of the faith. He was promised that his descendants would become this great nation. And then Isaac inherited that promise. But then with Isaac's children, the promise skips over the older son Esau. He's only older by a few moments because they're twins, but he is older. So that promise skips over Esau and goes to Jacob. Why? Well, because God chose Jacob, and he did not choose Esau. God loved Jacob, and he hated Esau. Even though Esau was also a descendant of Abraham, even though Esau was the older son, and there was no other worldly distinction between Jacob and Esau, God simply decided to choose Jacob and not Esau. The Apostle Paul Speaking about God's freedom to choose whoever he wants, put it this way. He said, Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You see, there was nothing different About Jacob and Esau, they have the same parents, they were twins, yet Jacob was chosen and Esau was not. And and this choice was not based on their actions in any way. The Apostle Paul says it was made before they were born or had done anything good or bad. The choice was based not on their works, but simply on something within God. It was based on his free decision to choose and call whomever he wants to choose and call. And so God's answer to the charge that he has not loved Israel is to say, I chose you. What do you mean I haven't loved you? I I chose you. Jacob's name was changed to Israel and all of his children then became the Israelites. Esau's children became the Edomites, and at the time the Malachi is writing this, uh, the Edom has been displaced from their land by a tribe of uh, nomadic Arabs, and, and it quite literally was a desert waste full of jackals. And the Israelites, as hard as things were for them, were back in their land, which actually never happens. <laughs> I thought about this. Do you, I, you may know of one, but I don't. I can't think of a single nation that has ever been displaced from their land and totally conquered and destroyed that ever went back into their land and built up a nation again. It may have happened, but I I couldn't think of a single one. And here Israel is, back in their land. With the temple, with walls around the city again. And the Edomites, they never returned to their land. They thought they were going to, but they never did. In fact, they don't even exist as a people anymore. And what's interesting is that God doesn't give Israel the fact that they are back in the land as evidence of his love. Yet he does give Edom the fact 
that they're never returning to their land as evidence of his hatred. So what does it mean for God to love Jacob and hate Esau? Well, first of all, we cannot take human psychological categories into account here. Because God doesn't hate anyone with vengeful, vindictive hatred like humans hate people. So whatever it means for God to hate Esau, it it must be something that we'll probably never fully understand or ever be able to wrap our minds around. And so with that in mind, let us just consider what we can know from the text, okay? Here's what we can know that it means for God to love Jacob and hate Esau. We know that God chose Jacob, and he did not choose Esau. It's like when you... um, It's like when you go to select a puppy from a litter of puppies, right? You show up, and there's all these cute puppies all nursing on their mom, squirming around, and there's no difference between any of them. Well, some of them are boys and some of them are girls, but otherwise there's no difference. And for whatever reason, some mysterious thing happens, and you set your affection on one little puppy. And that's the puppy you choose. You choose that puppy, and you leave the rest. But with God, it's not like he's choosing us out of a litter of innocent puppies. He's choosing us out of this mass of rebellious humanity that the Heidelberg Catechism says we all have a natural tendency to hate God. And yet he comes and he he chooses us. He, He puts his love on us. Simply because he chooses to love us. And he hates the rest because they are sinners who deserve to always be under his wrath. God goes on to say, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You see, it's not like Israel deserved any less than this. They didn't deserve to be back in their land. They didn't deserve to have access to God's word through his prophets. Both Israel and Edom deserve to always be under the wrath of the Lord, but God chose Israel. So the only evidence that we need to have in order to know God loves us is our faith. The fact that we believe in Jesus, the fact that we can know our sins are forgiven because Christ earned a perfect righteousness for us and then suffered the penalty for our sins in our place, the fact that we believe that is the only evidence that we need to know that God loves us. No matter what we suffer in this life, No matter our disappointments and failures, no matter our own struggles with our own sin, no matter how hot or cold our affections for God are at any given moment, if God has chosen us by giving us eyes to see and faith to believe that we can know that he loves us, even if we doubt that belief. Yes, even if we doubt. Because it's not the strength of our belief that saves us. It's the strength of the one in whom we believe that saves us. So how do we keep this hope? How do we hold on to this faith that enables us to receive the love of God even when life is hard? Well, the answer is we keep our hope 
When God takes our gaze off of ourself and puts it on Him in His glory. So now we're back at verse 5 where we started. God says, You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. So the question is, what are the Israelites going to see with their own eyes that will cause them to say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel? And how is that going to drive home the reality of God's love for them? And how is that going to secure their hope in the midst of their difficult circumstances? And how does that account for the fact that God's promises seem to have failed, David's son is not on the throne, the temple is not filled with glory, and God has not allowed Israel to become this glorious place predicted by the prophets. Remember, we said that if our hope is in God, our hope cannot fail. And then we said that if we lose hope, that must mean that we've actually placed our hope in something of this world. Okay? And there's no guarantees that we'll ever keep anything of this world. Which is why God doesn't put their focus back on those earthly promises. He doesn't come to them and say, don't worry, you will get a job. Don't worry, healing is on its way. Edom is not getting their land back, but I'm going to give you everything I promised you. He doesn't say that to them. Because that would feed into this misunderstanding. God says, I'm not going to open your eyes to something great happening in Israel. Instead, I'm going to show you the greatness of God extending beyond the borders of Israel. You see, our hope is not fed by increasing our own personal happiness and enjoyment. Our hope is not fed when we have pleasant circumstances, good health, good relationships, a fulfilling life and career, or even a personal sense of well-being. Our hope in God grows when we see the greatness of God beyond the borders of our little lives so that what is happening in our lives becomes insignificant compared to what God is doing true lasting hope fills our heart when God takes our eyes from off of our life and shows us his glory beyond the borders of our life and we all know this is true right it's the person who's consumed with missions and evangelism and worship, and service, who is generous. It's the person who is filled with zeal for all those things, who cares very little about the hurts and pains and ups and downs of their little life. Because they've been swept up by God into something so grand and so glorious Our hope will always be unstable if the focus is within the borders of our life. So God takes us, and he fills us with hope and expectation, not of life going necessarily how we desire it to go, but the hope and expectation of God glorifying himself in this world regardless of the details of our life. God is telling the Israelites here that his plan is and always has been for his glory to fill the earth and for everyone that he has chosen from all the nations to come to know him and to glorify him. And God is going to give them a sure hope that they will see all God has done and all that God is doing to glorify himself as they faithfully wait for him. 
And God assures us of his love by the simple fact that he chose us. And we know this is true simply because we have faith that he has given us. And then God will open our eyes to see him glorifying himself in this world regardless of what's happening in our life. And when this is the source of our hope, it is indestructible. So may God grant each of us this kind of hope. May we be those who know God loves us because he chose us and gave us faith to believe in what Christ has done to save sinners like us. And may our hope be in the expectation that God will glorify himself beyond the borders of our little life. And may we serve him faithfully with hope and expectation, regardless of our circumstances, knowing that we're loved and that he will glorify himself in this world. And may we be willing, like a little child, right? Daddy, take whatever you want so that you will be glorified. I'll give you whatever. I'll do whatever you call me to. I just want to see your name made great. And if that is the source of our hope, then our lamps will always be filled with oil. And when Christ returns, we will gratefully and joyfully be ushered into the wedding feast. Let's pray. Father, we come and we confess that it's so easy for our eyes to be turned down onto our lives and onto our wants and desires and our little hopes for this world. And Father, many of those things are so good. And you and your grace grant us so many of those things. Help us not to be consumed by them, however. Help us to be consumed by your glory and what you are doing beyond the borders of our life, that we may be caught up and swept up by missions and evangelism and worship and service for you and for your kingdom and your glory. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.